for thousands of years, memorization has been the thing that people use to remember. This might sound really obvious, but bear with me. (laughs) If you need to remember something, you memorize it. If it's important to you, you memorize it and you commit it to your memory. This is seen all over in our culture, in our world, for sporting teams. They go hit the field, they go out and they run their plays. How do they know what plays to run? They've memorized them, they've practiced them, they've studied them. In the corporate world, a CEO comes into the boardroom and he's not reading off his notes. If he's a good leader, he's, he's memorized the material. He knows what he's talking about. We value this kind of transfer of information. Andy Nacelli is a New Testament professor at Bethlehem Seminary in Minneapolis. He's memorized the entire book of Romans. And I've heard him recite it in a church service. It's amazing. But memorization is a tool that God has given us to remember and to commit into our soul and into our mind important information. Now my point in telling you this is that if things are important to us, we remember them. If things are dependent on something, like in your job, if there's a formula, if there's an equation, if there's a way of doing something that you need to know, you're going to memorize it because your job depends on it. We remember things that are important. Husbands, we remember our wives' birthdays and anniversaries because we want to live long and happy lives. These are important details for us to remember. Early in Israel's history, God gave them kind of a summary statement to commit to memory to remind them who he was. You know what I'm talking about? This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. And I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This information that God is giving to Israel, this summary truth, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was to be internalized, memorized. All of this language about putting it on your wrist and between your eyes and on your post is a way of telling us, have it be part of your life everywhere. When we get to the early church now, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, there's another tool that is used for remembrance. There's another tool that the church used to put big concepts into a summary form, and we've already talked about this. It is creeds and confessions. As the church developed and faced different heresies that came up, so example, somebody would say, well, I believe in Jesus, but... I don't think he was really God. He was a good man. He did all this stuff. How do you defend that? How do you summarize it? So as the early church fathers and the apostles worked on defending the truth and the purity of the gospel, there formed out of that these things that we call creeds and confessions, which are summary statements of orthodox truth. And we'll get into what orthodox means in a couple minutes. But we need to remember, in the first century, literacy was extremely low. It was not like today where most people read. And not only was literacy low, but the availability of any kind of printed material was almost unheard of. 
If you had a scroll or a parchment with writing on it in your home, it was very unusual. So, part of the reason for the development of these creeds, these confessions, is that it was a way for the early church to get to know this is what we believe, this is what we affirm as believers. Maybe you didn't have access to the writings of the apostles, but you could memorize something like the Apostles' Creed, right? So these things were used as tools. And so with some of that background, knowing kind of why this comes, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. And what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, is to give us what could be seen as a sort of creed, a confession, a summary statement of these things that we believe about God and we believe about the church, we believe about Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and so on. So I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4 and I will read through verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse Sorry, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We'll get it. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, I come to you thankful this morning for so, so many different things. I'm thankful, Lord, for your preserving grace that has kept all of us through this past week. And now we are gathered together here this morning to worship you, to be encouraged by fellowship and to hear from your word. I'm thankful, Lord, for the way that your word is clear. I'm thankful for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that takes the words of Scripture and applies them to our hearts and so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you only by your power. I'm thankful, Lord, for this body of believers that gathers every week and I pray that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit so that we would understand all of the different things that you want us to understand, your love and your compassion for us, your hatred of sin and your mercy, the way that you have offered up your son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. God, help us to not only know these things, but to have affections for you as we understand them. This morning as we look at this text now, in Ephesians 4, I pray that by your Spirit you open our understanding. Help us to know what's in your word, Lord, and help us to love you because of what we see. And I pray that the unity that Paul is driving at would be evident in our church. That we would not divide over things that ultimately do not matter, but that we would be united, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and that is you. So I give you thanks, and I ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So after instructing us last week, we went through verse 3, Paul instructs us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He now moves on to make several statements or common 
convictions that would have been held among the churches at that time. As I mentioned earlier, this is a sort of creed, a sort of confession. If you're familiar or you've read things, even what we read this morning, this is the format, these statements of fact working down the line. One of the main emphases in Ephesians is unity, especially as it refers to the church. We picked this up starting in chapter 2 when Paul was talking about Jew and Gentile now being united through Christ. There was no division any longer, but they have been brought together by the blood of Jesus. The unity starts there, and it's going to carry almost all the way through the book. And we're seeing it right now play out in the church when Paul says there is one body. This is his focus, is to create unity in the church. Sometimes when we read creeds and confessions, they oftentimes start with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and so on. But Paul, in this section, starts with the church. Not because he's trying to put the church over God somehow, but he is trying to hammer home this point that unity in the church is what he is driving at. This is his emphasis. So this is where he starts. One body. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 Paul said that Jesus reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. In fact, many places in Paul's writing, he emphasizes or draws attention to the fact that the church is one body. This is how he refers to the church. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 4. Paul says, For as in one body we all have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, referring to the church, although many, are one body in Christ. Or Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. There is an emphasis on unity here. Eventually, as church history develops and things are defined, we would come to refer to this one body, this universal body, as the Catholic Church. And Josh did a great job of explaining. This is not referring to Catholicism. This is referring to universal This is how they define the one body. The confession of one body then leads Paul to the declaration that there is one spirit. One body, one spirit. We've also seen several areas in which the Holy Spirit works and applies truth to us in the book of Ephesians. For example, chapter 2, verse 18, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to God through the Spirit. Okay, We see a lot of workings of the Holy Spirit here. So the Holy Spirit then is the one who mediates or gives us access that we now have to God because of Jesus. So given everything Paul has said, what's the significance of him saying there is one Spirit? Why does he add this in the context of Ephesians? For most of the surrounding area and the geographical area of Ephesus, I've said this a bunch of times, there were hundreds and thousands of different gods, right? We've talked about this quite a bit. And for Paul to tell them that this affirmation, this confession now of saying one spirit marks a significant departure from what these people are used to because there was so much other stuff going on and all of these things. And in addition to idol worship, to all of these gods going on, there was a heavy emphasis on magic in the culture of Ephesus, I mean, you're already worshiping idols, why don't we just throw a little magic in with it, right? So there was this real heavy emphasis on calling on different spirits to help you. If you want good crops, call on the spirit for agriculture. 
and make your ground fertile, right? If you want to have a better marriage, call on this spirit and it'll help you with your love and your marriage. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. So when Paul comes in now and he says there is one spirit, this would have been like, oh, but I thought there was a whole, no, almost everything Paul says in this section you can read as a polemic. Polemic is addressing a problem or addressing an issue in your presentation. So Paul is correcting the way of thinking that these Ephesians had. There aren't many spirits floating around trying to help people, whatever. There is one spirit. This is Paul's emphasis here. He's introducing a whole new way of thinking and believing, and he's correcting the false ideas that these people had because of a lifetime of idolatry. One spirit, which comes from the one true God, the Father of all. The Holy Spirit is the one who marks believers as gods and is himself a deposit or a seal for our future inheritance. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 13, which is, I think, what Paul is talking about now in the next phrase. So verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We have one hope as Christians. And that hope is inseparably tied to our calling as believers. One hope that belongs to your call. Now, at this point, somebody could say, and rightly, aren't there many things that we hope in as believers? I mean, what's the point of just saying, is Paul just putting the word one in front of everything? No, there's a point And the reason I think he says one hope is seen here. We should use the context of Ephesians. If you're ever reading through a passage and it seems unclear and you're not sure what, it seems like maybe it's saying this, but it's not saying this, use the immediate context first. If it's in the book of Romans, try to find in Romans because the author has a flow of thought. Okay, that was a parenthesis. But here's what I think. If you remember back to chapter 2, verse 12, It should just be on the next page back. You can read it or just follow along. Paul said this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So there was a time When we, apart from Christ, we had not yet heard the gospel of our salvation, responded in the faith that God gives us, that hadn't happened. We were apart from Christ, and as such, we were without hope. Any hope. So, the hope that belongs to our call should be seen in contrast to the fact that before coming to Christ we had no hope and now we have hope. And it is an all-encompassing hope. You know what all-encompassing means? It just means including everything. I don't know why I'm doing this, but it seems to fit with the all-encompassing hope. Now, of course, this hope includes a number of things like the hope of eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the hope of sanctifying grace that makes us more like Jesus. But I want to suggest another additional, not contrary, but an additional meaning to this hope that Paul is telling us. And I think we could read this in terms of a warning to us. Bear with me. Paul knows that as human beings... We, all of us, are prone to put our hope and trust 
in people or things that were never meant for us to hope in. He knows that. It's easy for us to let our eyes wander and to start to put our hope in things that are fleeting or temporary or unstable. And when we turn away from God as the source of our hope, of course it's harmful for us because we're putting our hope and trust in something that is unsure, something that is unstable. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we dishonor God as the source of our hope. When we turn away from God and find our hope, satisfaction, pleasure, enjoyment, anything in other than He is, it's not just that it affects us negatively, which it does, it's that it dishonors God because He is the one who says, put your hope in me, put your trust in me, stop relying on yourself. So I think Paul is saying this to warn us, don't put your hope in worldly things. There is one hope and it is God. It is not you. For your family. The psalmist knew this. Many times in the book of Psalms we see the, the command to hope in God. Psalm 130 verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. Psalm 146 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 147, verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So when Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, there is one hope that we have been called to, not only is it a contrast to our life before Christ, when we had no hope, it is a warning to say, One hope, not many hopes. Does that make sense? It's a warning. Don't place your hope in your health. Hope in God. So many of us do that. That one particularly just was really mm, in my mind. Because especially in a year when everyone is totally fearful Am I going to get this? Am I going to die? Am I going to choke? Am I going to whatever? That's not the best that God has for you. Hope in Him. Don't hope in your money, your wealth. Don't hope in your status, your position, the way people think about you. Hope in God. Because hope in God is the only thing that is stable. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what we sing. I just wonder if we believe it when we sing it. There is one hope, and it is God. There's so much distraction. There's so many things that pull our attention away, and and before long, it might not even be intentional. It might just be after a while you realize, oh, I I was putting my trust in that. And I'm calling you this morning, everyone here, quit it. Quit relying on yourself and come to Jesus and put your hope in God. There is no other hope. There is no other hope. Paul says, one body, one spirit, one hope. Now the next set of convictions that Paul is going to articulate to us in this creed of sorts are in verse 5, where he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Now the word Lord is kind of a favorite depiction of Christ for Paul. Eight times in the book of Ephesians, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. And I think, of course, he's thinking back to his religious upbringing. Paul was a Pharisee prior to conversion. He had been educated in all the traditions of the Jewish people. So he's remembering what we just read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We can see that influence all over this section of Ephesians. By Paul telling the Ephesians that Jesus is Lord, he is saying that Jesus Christ possesses all authority, power, dominion, right to do as he sees fit. He is Lord. And again, we have to contrast this with what these people were experiencing. The Ephesians were in a place where all of these gods were considered as lords over them, and they were responsible to them. They were accountable to them. Paul is saying no. Same thing with the spirits a minute earlier. There are not many lords. There is one Lord, and it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. There are not many lords that we put ourselves under. There is one Lord. And Paul is correcting, again, the way that they had been thinking. He wrote something similar in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a really good complement to this text we're in. Listen as I read. This is verse 5. 1 Corinthians 8, 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, I love that, As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, the church, believers, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit about that when we close in a few minutes. Now, this wasn't only relevant in Paul's day, but I think it's hugely relevant for us. Because we live in a time, and you've probably noticed this, that to say anything definitively is not popular. The world does not like someone who has a strong opinion, unless it aligns with their opinion. So for us to preach one Lord, one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ is our calling as believers. But it is not a popular calling, especially in an age that is labeled as inclusive. How dare you tell me that there is one way to do something, I'll make my own way. Thus we have all the different religions. But that's not the truth. The truth is that there is one way to God. Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we are to be saved than Jesus Christ. One Lord. So, now we come to faith. There is one faith. Now usually when Paul uses the word faith, he's referring to our believing. Right? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember that? And he uses it like that in chapter 1, verse 15, 2.8, chapter 3, verse 12. But here, when he says one faith, he's using it to refer to a set of convictions. He's using it to refer to this grouping of truth that we adhere to as believers. He uses it again this way in verse 13 of chapter 4 when he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. What does that mean? 
(laughs) It is the set of beliefs that the church believes. I think when Paul says there's one faith, he is referring to what we would call orthodoxy or orthodox theology. Orthodox is made up of two words. Ortho, meaning straight or true. You go to the orthodontist, same root word, to straighten your teeth. Okay, so think straight, ortho, and doxa, which is a commonly held belief or way of thinking. So orthodoxy is the right and true commonly held way of thinking. Does that make sense? So when I say orthodox, that's what I mean. If you're watching somebody do something, a a job, a task, whatever, and you say, that's kind of an unorthodox way of doing that. We use that, right? What does that mean? It means that they're not doing it quite in the way that we're used to somebody doing it. So when we say orthodox theology, all that means is that it is the commonly held right way of thinking about something. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says one faith, one set of beliefs that we are to adhere to when he says this in verse 5. Contrary to popular opinion, (laughs) as I was just saying, there is a standard for us as believers. There really is. There are not many ways to think about getting right with God or coming to Christ or whatever. There is what the Bible lays out as one way, and it's through Jesus. We know this from the Gospel of John. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, singular, singular, singular. There is one Lord and there is one faith. Next, in the statement Paul makes here that says that there is one baptism. And I'm going to tell you what I think this doesn't mean before I tell you what I think it does mean. I don't think Paul is promoting a certain mode or means here. Of baptism. He's not saying there is one baptism, therefore everybody has to do it this way. There are proof texts in the Bible for baptism. This is not one of them. Some people have also tried to make this text into an either or kind of a thing, saying that Paul is talking about the baptism of the Spirit, not baptism by water. And they would say, see, he just said there's one Spirit. We're still in the flow of thought there. One Spirit, one baptism must be the baptism of the Spirit. And I think Paul is probably talking about both the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism by water. Baptism of the Spirit is just Paul's way of saying we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. Okay, That's what I believe he's talking about. I don't think it's some kind of additional experience or thing that we do once you get to kind of this higher level of Christianity. We know from the book of Romans that the Spirit indwells every Christian. And I think that's what he is referring to. And water baptism is the symbolic act by which we, after conversion, identify with Christ and his church and his death, burial, and resurrection to newness of life. When Paul says there is one baptism, I think he's referring both to the ordinance of baptism and to everything that it is symbolic of. One baptism is a sign of the believer's union with Christ and unity with other believers. Paul's emphasis, as I said here, is unity in the church. Paul's not simply trying to keep symmetry, like I said before, with with putting one in front of every one of these clauses. I think he is driving at the point that there is unity in God, 
there is unity in our faith, and therefore there ought to be unity in our churches. And if we wonder, how does that look? How does this work? We look to God, and we look to his word, and we look to things like this, and we see that Paul is driving home. He's taking a lot of space on the page to talk about unity in the church. We're going to talk about this more next week, but I just want to make a parenthesis point that unity does not mean we all agree on everything all the time. It can't, or there would be no churches. I'm sure if you and I sat down across the table, we would find within five minutes something we don't exactly agree upon. Which is why I think we need to go back to Paul's statement of one faith. Do we agree on the main tenets of the gospel? Jesus Christ Son of God, fully God and fully man, came to earth, died on the cross as a punishment for our sin, was buried, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God. And now anyone, regardless of who you are, if you have faith in Jesus and put your trust in him, will be saved. That's the gospel. And if we can keep that at the center of what we do, It's not that the other things aren't important. We all have things that we kind of get under our saddle and we really want to drive them home. Paul's not saying, ah, forget about that stuff. He's saying, hold it in a way that you can get along with one another. So we'll talk about this more next week, but I just want to say, unity does not mean we all have exactly the same idea. And yet we fellowship together, we love one another, we have unity through Christ. Like we said last week, our job as Christians is not to create unity. God did that. By uniting us to Christ, our job is to preserve it or maintain it, which is what Paul said in verse 3 of chapter 4. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we're not going to have time to get to verse 6 this morning, so we are going to start there. Next Sunday, we'll take 6 through 10. But for this morning, I want to close by offering three points of application for us. I'm going to state these in terms of my desire for the church. Now, my desires are only right or good when they come under the authority of the Bible, right? So I hope that as you hear these, you hear them coming out of our text today. But I thought this might be a helpful way to articulate some of the application that I saw in this text and see if you don't agree. So three things. First, I desire that as a church, we be grounded in the rich history of our faith. I desire that we be grounded in the rich history of our faith. This includes things like creeds and confessions, which we just read this morning. It is so good for us to remember, like Josh said, we are not the first generation of Christians. We are not the first people to read the Bible and try to understand what it says. We're not the first people to deal with church problems and how do we spread the gospel and all this stuff. We have a rich tradition, 2,000 years of example to look at. And I desire that as a church, we know that and we take advantage of all the different means of grace that God has given us in these historical examples. They are not equal with Scripture, but they can be very helpful in helping us understand what the Bible says. For example, when we were having planning meetings and talking about the start of Grace Bible Church, we could have written our own doctrinal statement. 
A doctrinal statement is a list of things that we believe as a church. And if you come into membership at Grace Bible Church, we ask you to agree to and adhere to this doctrinal statement. We believe this about God. We believe this about the Holy Spirit. We believe this about election and the purpose of grace and God's plan for preservation and the coming of Christ and all these things. We could have done that. But we chose rather to adopt the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, which is about 200 years old. It has stood the test of time Thousands and thousands of people have affirmed this as their confession. Now, is it a matter of right and wrong? Nope. It's a matter of our desire to be rooted in more than just what we come up with. I can come up with some crazy stuff, I guarantee you. And I don't want to. Right? I want to be rooted and grounded in what God has already provided for us. So, I desire that our church be founded on those things. Number two, I desire that we be a church that knows the hope that we were called to. I want us to know the hope that we were called to. Paul said there is one hope that belongs to our call. Do you know it? Are you living your life in a way that anyone can look at and see they got it? They hope in God. Or do you live in fear? disappointment because you've put your hope in the wrong things or the wrong people. Paul's desire for this church was that they know that there was a hope they were called to and my desire for us is that we know the hope that God has called us to. So again, I am calling you to this this morning. Hope in God. Third and lastly, I desire that we be a church that boldly preaches one Lord. Boldly preaches one Lord. There are many false saviors in the world. There are many things that entice us and tempt us and say, you come along this way, I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy you. I'll make you happy, I'll make you successful, I'll do all this. And we end up putting ourselves into bondage to these things. But I want us as a church to proclaim one Lord. Don't put yourself under the yoke of slavery again. Christ freed you from that. There is one Lord. There is one that we submit to. I desire that we know this. Don't put yourself under anyone else's lordship. Don't serve another master. There is one Lord. And he has graciously called us to himself. He is not a hard taskmaster. He's a gracious Lord. It's, it's a privilege to serve him. And I desire as a church that we boldly proclaim that in a time where it is wildly unpopular to say anything definitive. We must speak the truth and say there is one way to God. There is one hope to be had. Come into it. We need to boldly proclaim that there is one hope. Let's pray together that God would make this true in our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you that you did not establish things in such a way where there were many options and we were just left up to ourselves to hopefully choose the right one, but you have made things clear enough so that we see there is indeed one Lord, one faith, and we desire to follow in that.
but we desperately need your help. There's no way that we in ourselves have the strength, have the confidence, have the courage to follow after you the way we should. And so, God, we come humbly and we come needy to you and ask that you do this. God, make us a church full of people who boldly proclaim one Lord. Help us to know the hope that we were called to and to live our lives in such a way that the world around us sees and hears and comes to faith in Jesus as a result of the lives that are lived here. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your spirit. Jesus, you said, when I go away, I'm going to send to you a helper. And you did. And now we don't read your Bible just as another book, but we read it with the Holy Spirit working through the text and opening our eyes. And so, God, please continue. Please continue your faithfulness to us just as you have. Make us a church that is convinced of the truth of the Bible and graciously and humbly yet boldly live that out. We give you all praise and glory for what you've done and what you've promised to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.